Hello everyone and welcome along to this very special episode of the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. Um, it's special in the sense that this is actually a two-part vlogcast being uh, brought to you from the sidelines of our Sustainability Leaders Forum in London. Uh, this vodcast is being sponsored by E.ON. And as the way that we use energy changes, so too can the opportunities for businesses to harness that. Um, and if you want to find out more about that and the services that E.ON can provide, please search eonenergy.com forward slash solutions. So yep, this is um, very different to anything we've done before on the ED podcast in the sense that it's also got uh, video cameras rolling in the background. Um, and we're going to be broadcasting this both in terms of audio format on the podcast and also uh, to YouTube and our video channels. Um, so the Sustainability Leaders Forum is well and truly underway. We're, on, we're in the break of day one, actually. Um, leadership labs and uh, thinkathons are taking place in the background. And we have commandeered the auditorium main stage for about half an hour to 45 minutes. In fact, if we were able to pan the cameras around, you'd see a very, very empty um, <laughs> auditorium, which hopefully is going to help with the discussion because there's, there's less people watching, at least now. Um, so we're hoping for some nice, honest discussion. And that's the point of this two-part podcast. We're going to be speaking to a, um, a range of speakers and delegates at the forum across both days, and we're just trying to inspire some really thought-provoking discussions around sustainability leadership. So let's start with my four guests um, today. And I was going to do the introductions, but the fact there's four of you means I'm probably just going to pass it on to you guys to all introduce yourself. So um, um, as a starting point then, do, have any of you actually met each other before or worked with each other before? I've heard John speak at the um, a Plastic Ocean event. And, yeah, so let's, this let's start with John introducing <laughs> himself then. And so then I'm, I'm John Koo. I'm the Regional Sustainability Manager at Interface. Um, we're a flooring manufacturer who has, uh, has got a long tradition in being committed towards sustainability. Um, and I'm also speaking today, so <laughs> you get to hear me again. Um, so, but yes, I'm looking forward to today, lots of inspiration, and it's always good to see what's happening in, in different sectors um, across the sustainability realm. Great stuff, John. Uh, thank you for the introduction, and we'll just kind of go, I suppose, clockwise around. So, um, Marina, would you like to just introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Marina Schillo, and I'm a manager in commercial banking and Lloyd's Banking Group. Great stuff. Um, thank you, Marina. And you were, um, you were actually in the audience for the morning session, was that right? Yes. Um, how, did, how did you find that? I, I was unfortunate in the sense that I was doing so much admin stuff in the background, I didn't get a chance to hear from the likes of Jonathan Porritt. So was it, was it, did you come away feeling quite enlightened and ready for a discussion? Uh, yes, I think it's, <coughs> it was quite an enlightening and uh, uh, inspirational talk though I missed a little bit of it because of the tube. <laughs> but yes, it was really good, and I think it's a very good way to start the discussion to get people inspired and to get the urgency of the problem. And, uh, that's, uh, and the inspirational speaker, like John, it's a very good uh, start for the day. Great. Yeah, John um, is a kind of a well of knowledge and just inspiration in, in that sense as well and hopefully we can tap into some of that during this discussion and uh can you, if you'd like to introduce us because you're actually going to be speaking in an hour or so i believe yeah i'll be on a panel so hi i'm kenne i'm head of environment at tesco and the remit of my role covers our full value chain so from farm all the way to the customer's home and it covers our impact on 
the climate, on marine sustainability, on forests, sustainable agriculture, and fresh water. So um, energy, for instance, is only a subset of the climate agenda for me. We cover the full range. Being a retailer, our impact stretches across the full food system and all the processes that deliver the food to our customers. Great stuff. And finally, to my left, uh, Kat. Uh, hi, uh, I'm Kat Leggett. Uh, I'm a program assistant at Global Action Plan. Um, and we are an environmental charity that connects what's good for you and good for the planet. Um, and I'm really lucky in that we're a small enough charity that I get to do a little bit of everything. Um, and that includes working with our youth panel, which has been so fun. And so you're also um, speaking later on this afternoon, which is also about kind of inspiring the next generation of what will be a sustainability leader, um, which is a really nice note to end day one on, um, in my personal opinion. And that's kind of one of the areas that I want to be able to discuss um, with you for today. Um, I kind of narrowed down sustainability leadership as much as I possibly could to fit into a kind of half an hour, 45 minute chat. Um, so we've got we're going to have a kind of look at the next generation of leaders and what kind of soft skills they need to be equipped with as well as knowledge to, to really inspire business to act. Um, and we're going to kind of delve into the role of a sustainability professional in taking sustainability from a department to an entire business. We're going to be looking at um, climate science and the roles of setting really ambitious targets as well, which obviously applies to, to you quite a bit, John. And, you know, just using the current state of global frameworks, whether that be stuff like the Paris Agreement SDGs or just the general kind of feeling around sustainability and climate action amongst the public to inspire action. Those are the four pillars that I want to um, kind of tap into at some point. But I suppose a good place to start is with the tagline for the Sustainability Forum. This is all about kind of turning ambition into action. So it would be great to get um, some insight into all four of you. In terms of your job remit, what you... Um, hope to do, aspire to do either in your in your role or just as um, just as a professional, a kind of ambition around sustainability that you would hope to achieve and what do you think will need to happen to achieve that? So I realise I've just thrown that on you, so I'm, I'm willing to take, I'm willing to let someone go first as and when they're ready. Well, um, I'm going to answer the question I heard, so the one, okay. the one I'm, I'm ready to answer, yep, if that's correct. okay. So, so the, what's needed? Uh, in sustainability leadership to, to drive ambition into action. I think one of the things to bear in mind is that if we're to succeed in the sustainability goals that we have, whether it's climate change or forest or, or any other agenda, um, there are a number of areas we need to be thinking about. One is generating the thought, understanding what the issue is and making the case for action. Converting people in a way to change their behavior to align but also thinking about policy, whether it's government policy or policy within businesses and practices and so on. Um, I feel sometimes, and this is just a personal opinion, not inspired by research, that we have probably enough people doing the education and talking about and analyzing the problem. We don't have enough people actually doing the doing. Mm. You know, so in a way, when I speak at career events, I find that most young people find it quite poetic, romantic, almost to go into the arena where they talk about the problem, they analyze it some more, and talk about who might be at fault. I think what's missing is turning that into agency. And I think a lot depends on the sustainability leader to not just be the person who technically understands the issues of sustainability and can quote all the numbers related to it, 
but actually understands how to navigate an organization to set and deliver sustainability targets. Now, that's not a specific sustainability capability. That's what I think is missing amongst a lot of sustainability experts that I've seen. They know all the technical details. They don't quite know how to make organizations or government departments act in the way that we all want. And I think that's a skill gap we need to, we need to fill real fast. Well, it's quite handy then that we've got Global Action Plan perhaps sitting on to this. <laughs> because obviously, that's, that's kind of one of the real purposes of the Global Action Plan. You, you highlight the, the need of urgency in the agency around issues, especially what you've done last year around the kind of clean air days, um, et cetera. Um, and obviously, you, you have this youth advisory panel as well where you are starting to connect young, I suppose, activists in, in how they view, view the world and, and how we treat it and the aim is to kind of connect them to businesses and inspire change. So it'd be interested to see what your thoughts are on, on, on Kenny's uh, kind of ambition and needs. Yeah, definitely. I think there is this risk of sustainability becoming completely romanticised and a nice in-the-future goal. Um, but from a young person's perspective, that's in the future is our, our life. That's going to be there. Um, and the action really does need taken. Um, and for me, the stuff that we do around Clean Air Day and empowering individuals and businesses and community groups and schools to take that action is so inspiring. And it doesn't have to be complicated. Choosing to cycle to work instead of take the car is really not a, a difficult thing to do. Um, but being enabled to do that can sometimes be the, the barrier. Um, so having a little cycle buddy to get there, um, for example. Um, and for me, that's, that's my, my personal um, aim. Definitely very early on in this journey. Um, but if I can get all of my mates to have heard of something like Clean Air Day, mm. that would be success for me. Okay, great stuff. And Marina, you obviously um, you, you come here as a delegate. You've sat in on the morning session. So in, in your own um, opinion, what was your, your reasoning behind coming to the forum? I mean, the morning session is all about uh, business reimagined and kind of accelerating what sustainable business leadership looks like. So what were you hoping to kind of get from this forum um, as, a, as a kind of individual? Well, I think that uh, the, the, it's, it, <laughs> I'm trying to both answer your question and also kind of relay my opinion about the previous one with, with, the, with skills gap. Yeah. So I am a sustainability professional, so I have an education in sustainability. So for me, I found sometimes it's difficult to Relay in this on the simple using the simple language to people who are not sustainability professionals, yeah, and especially if it's a business people. So, you absolutely agree with you that this is what we need uh, to turn the ideas or the scientific knowledge into the action. But I also see uh, another gap that. Uh, with the younger generation, it is quite obvious that most of the young, young, younger people, they know that sustainability is a nice thing to do and that this is the way to live as an idea. But for all the generations, which I also work with, I think that the gap is they actually need to be educated on the sustainability and understand how urgent it is because they do have a skill of um, turning, um, turning ideas into actions because of their age, because of their professional and business experience, but they are, some of them, they are missing the understanding of what it is and how important it is. So it's uh, those uh, igniting thing, like inspiring thing is very important, like uh, the talks by the sustainability professionals, but who has also not the boring numbers, but it's also uh, 
inspiring um, explaining of the problem and, and the urgency of it. Yeah, definitely that that sense. So of I'm uh, for, for at the forum. I'm learning. I'm learning. Um, sorry for interrupting. No, that's fine. I'm uh, learning both uh, how to communicate to people who are not sustainability professionals, but also learning how other organizations are communicating to the board, communicating to the other colleagues, how they engage them. So it's both ways. So it's always good to hear what the other others, other professionals in sustainability are doing. That's a very good point, actually. There's always a danger that sustainability professionals, and including at our events, can meet and talk to other sustainability professionals, but there is a need to get that conversation out of those departments and out of those professions. So it's it's great to see that that's the area we're moving in. And um, John, obviously you, you you rushed it to get in time, so thank you very much for, for doing that. I'm sure you spent the entire um, journey thinking about this discussion <laughs> and, and what Absolutely. your agency. Yeah, I thought so. Good. Um, I, I mean, to me, whether it's for our internal employee base interface or whether it's with our customers. There's two dynamics. One is that need to inspire people um, that you know climate change is a, a serious issue that affects us all, um, and the second is to empower them to do something about it. And I would agree with the sentiments of the, the group that we we're pretty good at the in, inspiring, um, especially within the sustainability bubble. But even outside, if I look at the effect of Blue Planet Two, I really like the fact that the BBC Radio guys are looking at a thing called Cool Planet, where they're mm -hmm. going to be talk, just talking about climate change, make it conversational. And um, I think that's going to help boost awareness. When I think about how I work with our employees, and we sell flooring products, but they're not just sales folks, they're agents of change when it comes to climate change. They can easily have that discussion around, it was hot this summer. Why was it hot this summer? Um, and that, that goes to that second part, but how do you empower your employees or your customers to feel that they can actually make a difference. On the generational point, I think it's really interesting. I really see this as an opportunity for some um, cross-generational kind of cooperation and collaboration and learning. Um, because it's, you know, if you're, if you're a millennial, yes, you will choose who you work for because you're gonna to wanna to work for a sustainable employer. But mm -hmm. if you, I mean, I was talking to one of my colleagues in the States the other day and he's just become a grandfather and it's just completely changed the way he's seeing the world, because what is the world that his granddaughter's going to live in? And I think there's some really interesting dynamics to be played around, um, and that would be, I'm not the expert, you guys are the expert on that, and, but it's a, that's a good opportunity um, around this on the empowerment side too. So it's, it's good to hear that it sounds like um, a lot of a lot of businesses, a lot of same professionals realise the role that younger generations can, can have in, in switching up the conversation, switching up new ideas. So, so what's the role of business then in not only reaching out to these younger voices and, and new minds, but also equipping them with um, certain skills that they'll need to, to lead. I'm going to open it up to, to all four of you again. Uh, so for me, the engaging youth piece really has to be genuine. There's a real risk that it becomes very tokenistic and you gather together a few young people and you listen to them in a focus group for 15 minutes and you've decided you understand what an entire generation of people think yeah. about an issue. Um, I think the creation of things like a youth panel or inviting a youth member onto your board as a trustee and having their thoughts completely ingrained into your business is really important. Um, it can be really daunting if you're 
in your early 20s and you're sitting in a room where maybe people have the power to make decisions and you don't, to voice what you think. Mm -hmm. So having those formalised channels of conversation are really important. Um, yeah. And so, like, for, for you, Fried, then, look, was there anything when you started your kind of sustainability journey, um, whether it was out of education, your first kind of role at a business, was there anything that you wish... Um, not that specific business, but just business collectively could have done a bit different to, to help um, accelerate the progress and, and get your voice heard at all? Or were you quite content with the, the journey you've had so far? I mean, w when I started my sustainability journey, there was no career in sustainability. <laughs> <laughs> so nobody could say, this is how you become a sustainability mm. professional. And, and my employer at the time, I worked for Cadbury Schweppes, was a very good company, it was founded by Quakers. The, the workforce, the leadership of the human resources team were very keen to provide the opportunity to contribute of your best. But there was just no path that anybody knew to becoming a sustainability professional. So they said, well, the guy who is now running a CR department, whose primary job at the time was writing annual reports and was the first or the second report we're writing that year, had started in this department, why don't you start there? I think now it, there's a, a clarity about uh, what a sustainability pathway or career could look like. However, one piece of advice that I got at the start in the early noughties when I started my journey from, from um, someone working in the field was that what she, she had seen lots of people who were passionate about sustainability, who were keen to do something about sustainability, but that when she looked at their CV, they didn't have the capability or the qualification or the experience to mm. work in this area. So for all the passion they had, they, she couldn't actually hire them. I think it was a veiled feedback to me. So, <laughs> so, and so I had to think about that. And I think that, that advice still stands. And if, if I were to advise people today, actually, to, on my earlier point about the skills that we now need to build in the sustainability world is what I call orchestration skills. It's not, and the analogy I often use is of an, of an orchestra. It's not so much that we need the best cellists anymore, those exist already, or the best pianists, those exist already. Actually, we need a conductor to make the orchestra work. And that's a skill in itself. It's different from technical skills in you know, being a climate scientist or being a marine biologist mm. and that sort of stuff. I'm not saying those are not important. I'm saying that for the past 10, 15 years, whether it's in consultancy, in academia, or indeed in business, those skills have been built up. What we don't have quite so abundantly are people who understand business, how the board makes decisions, how you get different departments within an organization to move, whether they share your views or not on sustainability. How do you get a big business to move? And that's a question that a sustainability professional ought to be asking because as citizens, we can make decisions to ride a bike and you know, in small organizations, that adds up. But in big organizations, a culture awakening needs to be backed up by organizational standards and policies, or oh, you're pushing against a brick wall. Big organizations protect its practices in, in policy, otherwise things can go wrong. When you step, for me, stepping into a big company, when you step into a big company, you need a, a different set of skills. In addition to your personal commitment and the choices you've made as a person, how do I get this big business to move? And when you get it right, it can be a very big impact indeed. 
really, really good stuff to hear, actually. Um, and uh, John and, and Marina, I'm going to come back to you in, in mm -hmm. the sense that um, as companies who work <coughs> for those bigger businesses, um, obviously you're, you're not necessarily representing them, but in, in your own kind of thoughts and opinions, what is the role of business in, in kind of reaching out to this young generation with, with new ideas, sharp minds, etc.? I think it's key. I think um, when it comes to tackling the issue of, of climate change, um, it's not something that one company's going to do alone. I'm going to be honest, carpet and flooring ain't going to save me. <laughs> <laughs> but if it can inspire people to, to do so, it can. And I think um, I'm seeing a lot of very interesting work where, I mean, kind of going back to what you're saying, that ability to know your sphere of influence and your skills, but to have a systemic view. I think number of people that have a st systemic view on things and are able to operate and persuade people to think that way is probably quite, is quite small. And for us as a business, it's really interesting because we work with a lot of architects and designers who are of a skill set mm. where they are starting to think systemically. So what if instead of talking about building standards, we throw them the issue of inclusive supply chains? and we get their thoughts on it. And this is effectively what we did with our networks program, taking fishing nets um, and turning them into our products in a way that helps communities, um, just to get their view on it. Because then they're starting to go, hang on, from a systems view, shouldn't everything within a building be coming from a supply chain that empowers communities, that thinks about the ecosystem alongside waste, alongside cost? And then they, they gave us great feedback. I, one of my favorite parts of my job is the feedback we get from them or the feedback we get from business school students. I imagine you guys have the same experience because they're inquisitive. They have great ideas. And I guess the proof point of that is you look at the success of Open Ideo, the, the, the ideation around open innovation forums across the world. There's some really fascinating coming through. And that theme throughout that is this ability to look at something systemically um, and to feel that within their skill sets and what they do day to day, that they can make a decision that will make difference and that's not always there but that is often there great stuff and um marina anything to add on on that i mean in your own in your own views whether it's what business can be doing or as, as i mentioned earlier was there was there something when you started your journey that well enabled it? <clears throat> i started as i started as a lawyer actually so okay. i i wasn't a sustain, sustainability professional from the very beginning i agree that at that point at that point of time it didn't exist so I switched later mm. in my career when I felt that uh, passionate about that. I always felt, felt passionate about the environment, but I was just uh, couldn't. Uh, the sustainability and the climate change didn't exist. We'd no, nobody heard about that at that at that point of time when I chosen my uh, wh wh what I'm going to do for my life, and it was law. But then I felt that this is something I feel p passionate about when it all started. So, a decade ago so and then I uh, think that I still I still believe that it shouldn't be the big divide about the younger generation and the older generation yeah. uh, so we, sh we shouldn't be engaging only only younger generation I think that the older gener generation of c colleagues should be engaged as well and it's even more important because they're decision makers mm -hmm. absolutely and they have this business uh, experience of how to uh, how to do things, how to how to how, how to do business, and uh, for for them it's more important to understand how you could do business 
and do it profitably and do the sustainable business profitably. So, and this means that it shouldn't be the sustainability should go out of the departments mm. of the silos and become a part of the business strategy. And uh, this uh, requires obviously a board buy-in into, into this. But uh, so I could actually give example from Lloyd's Banking. We uh, have a formal training, well, formal training, a formal training uh, with uh, University of Cambridge, mm -hmm. uh, the Institute for Sustainability, for Sustainability Leadership. So we are training our relationship managers and other colleagues, and we trained about uh, 300 of them now. Uh, so it's uh, it, it requires some formal understanding as well. So what is the sustainability? How I am going to engage my clients, and which are also businesses because I work in commercial business uh, banking. Sorry, and uh, so how do I engage with my client and help them their transition into the low carbon economy or clean growth mm. and everything everything else? So it requires an engagement, but it requires some formal education for them as well and I think that this is a very um, smart uh, uh, move in the from the corporate side is that giving a for uh, their giving colleagues the understanding how to what the sustainability is why it is important how we could make the clients to move to the sustainability because we can't do it alone or as a per, as only as per, um, you know as uh, on our personal level so yes obviously you could use you know uh, glass uh, instead of uh, plastic cup mm -hmm. or something but it's it's not enough it should be a bigger picture and it should be taken strategically and uh, business should lead the way not well lead the way in the business and uh, others should also lead the way where they can lead the way but this requires some structure, I think. Yeah, definitely. I've seen a couple of nodded heads, and it's really brought me on nicely to the to the point around engagement across other areas of the business. I mean, Kenny, you said that when you started out, there wasn't a sustainability department. Now, of course, there is, um, and I imagine there's a lot of companies out there that are, and a lot of sustainability professionals that are perhaps struggling to get the topic out of that department. It's quite siloed a lot of the time. So, so I mean. Tesco's has had a real kind of leadership piece, especially around those ambitious targets, which we'll come on to. But how, 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 you know, what advice would you give? Yeah, I think, first of all, I think loads of colleagues, I mean, everybody working in a company is also a citizen. They are part of this wider societal conversation that's happening in their private, personal lives. They're making those decisions to be more sustainable. They're agonizing, what more can I do? But often, most kind of get the sense that there's nothing I can do in my work. And so they only volunteer at the end of the day or weekends. Part of the job of a sustainability professional is to build those alliances of those who are already allies on this subject and help them understand how in their role they can contribute to what you're doing. So some of these ideas, one of the things we do in Tesco um, is we convene what we call the Environment Hour. We run it you know, every quarter, sometimes twice a quarter, where colleagues from across the business can come in and hear what we're, do, we're working on as a sustainability team. And often they get ideas and they say, actually, I can do that with my supplier. I can do that in my department. Can I have you come talk some more to us so that we can see what we can do? And so that starts off kind of 
nuclei of ideas all across the business, and then you can guide it. They might come to you and say, I'm not an expert in this. What do you think about this? That's one. The other bit is because we're more uh, kind of immersed in the subject, we hear of opportunities that might apply to them. For instance, we came across a company that uses uh, plastic that you can't recycle mm. and to replace bitumen in, in, road, in roadworks. And we thought that was a good idea. So I got in touch with our maintenance team and said, I'd like us to trial this to see if it can make an impact. You know, more than anything, I know to your point, you know, I don't think Tesco uh, car parks are going to be enough to take out all the plastic that exists. But I thought that we had enough visibility to draw attention to this new technology. So we went and spoke to our maintenance team. They found it exciting, as I said. They're also citizens. They're looking for what to do. They took it, and before too long, you would have heard the announcement. Tesco redid um, uh, re some car parks in Scotland using um, plastics. Mm -hmm. And contact to this company went up. So there are ideas like that, especially innovation ideas, especially late-stage innovation ideas, when you go to commercial colleagues and say, there is this technology that is ready to go to market, but nobody wants to try it because it's too new. Would you like to try it? You know, and they can look at it and say, these are the risks. This is how we can de-risk it and then they trial it and take it to market. So those sorts of initiatives, sometimes it might come from you as a sustainability function, finding a home for it within the business. Sometimes it comes from the rest of the business, they'll come to you. The loop idea we just announced mm, recently, yeah. a partnership with TerraCycle, that came to me from a commercial colleague. So TerraCycle went to a commercial colleague and said, I have this idea, I want to pitch it to someone at Tesco. Because they already knew who we were, they brought the, the organization to us, and I escalated it up to my boss, and he got to the CEO's desk, he got excited about it, and it was delivered. So these are some of the ways that you can help our colleagues, who are citizens themselves, as I said at the start, to see how in their job, not just in their voluntary life, in their jobs, they can make a, a difference as well. That sounds really beneficial then to the company because it's not just um, you going with solutions to your colleagues, but it's, a, it's kind of developed into a two-way street where now they can turn to you with solutions that they've been informed about. And it just makes, sounds like it just makes the whole working environment easier in, in that sense. And um, John, as, as a company that's had kind of sustainability and CSR leadership built in from about 25 years pretty much now. I imagine you've got some pretty similar stories to tell. Yeah, I, I, was, I, was, I think um, a lot of our best innovation sustainability-wise have come from our employees either asking questions or wanting to be entrepreneurs themselves and fix things. So mm -hmm. if you want to work out where you're losing water or heat in a factory, you could go to consultancy. They were very good. But equally, the person who works the line knows. Um, a lot of our more radical innovations have been people in our R&D teams or um, within our marketing teams going, I want to, what if we did this? I want to I tackle this issue. And we need to create this culture in innovation entrepreneurship where you encourage them to do so. I mean, we're very lucky that I think because a lot of people have joined us for a reputation in sustainability, um, if we chose to not invest in the sustainable idea we'd be in trouble and this actually happened we had a, uh, a factory line to install and we it was going to be using recycled content it was quite a big capital cost and one of the key considerations for the board was if we didn't invest in this we wouldn't be being true to our values and our employees would revolt and you don't we don't want it <laughs> a revolt of employees but it's 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 building up and i 
I mean, outside of us, I see a lot of other companies that do great work amongst the guys here, but you look at someone like Innocent, and you go to Free Towers, you see the passion and the ideas yeah. that's happening happening there. Or, I mean, we do a little bit of work on, with Next Wave with IKEA, HP, and Dell. And again, within those companies, the opportunity to, to engage and make your difference and be an entrepreneur, I think is really, is really key. And they've done a great job enabling that to happen. Um, but that, the other thing I was going to think about on this was the power of the question. So for us, our sustainability journey started with our customers asking, what are you doing about the environment? We should also be encouraging our employees to go, what are you doing around plastics? What are you doing around carbon? Where, you know, they are our eyes and ears. They are citizens. They are inquisitive. It's good to have that, to create that dialogue. It's very much a two-way process. And I think that's something that has changed in my reflection over the last kind of decade or so. So where before sustainability was just pushing out, we've achieved this, or here's a bit of inspiration to kind of saying, tell us what, what you're seeing, tell us what you want us to be doing. It's an, it's an exciting time to be in this realm because I think the conversation is bigger than it's ever been before. But our challenge is to turn that additional talk into action. Mm. So it, sounds, it sounds like in that sense that the, get the employee engagement aspect of it has has evolved to the point where I think if you perhaps surveyed a group of sustainability professionals and they say what the barriers around engaging other departments, I, I imagine the proportion that said just a lack of interest in the whole CSR area um, would have been greater a few years ago compared to now. It seems like stuff like Blue Planet, as you mentioned, the, the fact that um, older minds are becoming engaged with this as well as younger minds, means that it's no longer a case of they don't necessarily care or understand, but it's, it's the fact that they've got these behaviours and they've got their own focus and remit. So it is perhaps just framing that question in a way that it no longer becomes an additional part of their job, but it becomes a sustainability becomes the solution. Yeah. Is that mm -hmm. anything to say? Yes, but, but you know, again, I, you know, for a big company, there are processes that mm. you have to deal with. So I'll give you an, I'll give you an analogy. You know, met lots of people within business. Tesco is no different from others. Everybody wants to do something about climate change. But when we started, when we set our science-based targets um, uh, on, uh, around climate change, we saw that even though we were achieving very big reductions through efficiency improvements, we weren't going to meet what the, the science said we needed to achieve without switching to renewable electricity. And so we started talking to all the colleagues who had the levers of making that decision, the team that buys the energy, the team that consumes the energy, and those of us in the climate change team who keeps track of how much emissions are related to it. One of the barriers, and everybody wanted to do something, as I said earlier, but the key barrier was that the colleague who has to buy the energy, the mandate they've been given is to buy the cheapest, most secure source of electricity. And so for all the best intentions, unless that policy or that process changed, there was nothing they could do except feel guilty. You know? And that's not really, I'm not in the business of making people feel guilty. And of course, if you think about it, even though Tesco consumes nearly 1% of all the electricity the UK generates, it wouldn't make the top 10 things our board will discuss. It's not the focus of our business. Now, so for that colleague, their agenda will never make it into the board because as long as it's working, fine, we carry on with the main issues, which is the core of our business. 
Now, making it a climate change matter made it possible for us to elevate it to the board and say to the board, actually, the main barrier to switching to renewable electricity was that policy brief and that requirement. And so the question was, well, how can we do it at a way that doesn't increase our cost? And then that's where understanding how to navigate a business is quite important. Then we had to go away and do the numbers. It took us a year and a half. How do we do uh, switch to renewable electricity in a way that it doesn't increase cost for the business and it secures all the goals that we had? And we had to find the right combination of on-site generation and off-site power purchase agreements and all of that, and then create a roadmap that makes it possible for the business to transition to renewable electricity, not just in the UK, but across the group where we operate. And so we announced in 2017 uh, a, a plan to switch to 100% renewable electricity because we could say to the board, here's what the science requires us to do, here's what we need to do to meet that, and we can do it because here's where we save money in order to do it. And once we got that, the board approved it, the policy changed, the colleague who had earlier been charged with buying the cheapest electricity was now charged with buying the cheapest and most credible renewable electricity. And that's now I can sit back and they drive it from, the, from that team. And I don't have to, I can move on to looking at soy or palm oil or something else. And so that's an example. So it's not always a lack of will is mm. the point. You know, one needs to know, so preaching is not enough. Yeah. You have to roll up your sleeves as well and say, okay, what are the barriers? Who do I have to have this conversation with? And you need a lot of resilience. This conversation I've just narrated now took three and a half years. You need a lot of resilience to say, okay, what are the barriers? Let's address it. Let's bring in experts. Those consultants, you know, they knew more than I did about how you get the right combinations so that you keep it at, at cost neutral. Indeed, in the end, we found that in switching to 100% renewables, including on-site generation, we'll be saving hundreds of thousands of pounds every year. So, so that's an example that, you know, it's not just the lack of will. Educate them mm. some more, make them inspired some more. It's a good starting point, but it's not enough. It sounds like um, the, the determination has to be there in, in that department as well. To I mean, you mentioned it took three and a half years, it could be quite easy in any other job remit to be, but as a journalist, if I knew something was going to take me three and a half years, it'd probably demotivate me quite a bit. But yeah. the will, like we mentioned will again, but to keep going is, is really strong. And um, Kat, you mentioned earlier that from a, from a young person's perspective, having the having the confidence to perhaps stand up and, and make a point in a, in a meeting with perhaps more senior people might be you know quite daunting so how how do we kind of bridge the gap from a from a bright-minded individual to um someone who also has that determination to realize their idea has the right solutions in place even though it's going to take a bit of time yeah that's a, a really good question i think it's allowing firstly it's building up that confidence in the young person providing them with the opportunities and the training within the business to let them feel that their ideas are genuinely worth listening to and then at the other end, it's about encouraging people in senior management to listen. Um, there's, there's no point in having that conversation if it's just, oh, well, what a lovely idea. That's nice. Mm. We'll take it under consideration. And really what that means is we'll put it to the bottom of the pile and we're not going to revisit it in three and a half years. Because then you've got another three and a half years before anything's going to change, right? Um, yeah, I think, I think the real focus has to be on listening to young people and encouraging their ideas because um, yeah it can be terrifying <laughs> yeah no i completely completely appreciate that point and and kenny the the science-based targets was uh, perhaps a, a and it still is a really big moment for companies because it, it also it kind of gives that validation around everything the sustainability team and every 
aspect of a business move towards a sustainable future is trying to do it. It's, it's obviously got to be signed off by the CEO, and it, it's got that real, it's a public target that's out there. People can see it, can scrutinise and can reflect against you. So in terms of engagement, um, those real type of ambitious targets um, must, be, must be really helpful. And, in, and we're in a kind of post-Paris Agreement era where climate science is there, the frameworks like the SDGs, the TCFD are all there to start making a noise about it and I imagine you can relay that to other departments. But what I'm interested to do in, in, in the sense of bringing the supply chain on the journey and just alerting consumers um, and customers about the awareness, you know, how do you then take um, the science behind a science-based target, the, the, um, the kind of fine print perhaps of the TCFD and the just broad scope of the SDGs and have a one-to-one -one conversation with a consumer, uh, a, someone in your supply chain, a customer, maybe even just a friend. You know, that's just you're you're having a chat. With. How how do you relate such big, complex goals and targets into a one-to-one -one conversation? I'd be interested to get all your thoughts on that. Basically, it's it's really tough. Yeah, I think the theory's there, but not everyone's an economist. Not everyone's <laughs> like I think we've been we've been struggling as a as a a whole business world to say, well, how do we talk about carbon? Like, how do we make it, how do you make someone feel carbon? How do you make someone feel air pollution? There's mm -hmm. some good ones on that recently. Um, it, is, it is something that's really tough, and I think we need, there's a lot of work that needs to be, to be done there. Um, and it, one thing I think helps is that science-based targets give an authenticity mm. to a, a goal. Whereas I think the world is, of any generation, is aware of greenwash and aware of when something is just spin um, when it comes to sustainability. If you're looking at a science-based target or if you're looking at the SDGs, that gives you something a little bit more solid to have faith in. But I, I initially think it would be great to hear the rest of the group that it's something that we, that everyone's really, really struggled with. Um, no one's quite doing it beautifully. I'm very curious to see um, this phrase gets banded around a lot about how to make a uh, those discussions that came from Blue Planet around plastics, mm. how do you do the same for climate change? Um, you can see plastic, you can feel it, it's, you can smell it. Mm. The debates around carbon and climate change is a much different thing. And I've seen some cool stuff, and there might be some examples others have seen, but nothing that's done it on a mainstream level to date. And um, Marina, do you, do you have any um, thoughts on this in the sense that, I mean, you mentioned you, you kind of started off as a lawyer and then switched over to the sustainability kind of sphere. In, in terms of just the conversations you, you have with uh, colleagues and friends, has, has the awareness of perhaps broader climate or environmental issues like plastics grown? Can, can you have more of a conversation with that with, uh, I suppose, the man on the street, but there's still that gap to the perhaps more complex issues? Well, I because I, as I mentioned now, I have a I have a, an education in in, in uh, environment and climate climate science, so mm. I have a master's degree. But what I feel sh should be what how I could relay uh, the converse, uh, this in the conversation, I would totally avoid mentioning science and targets and things like mm. that because it's quite boring for the for the normal people who are not dealing with that. So I would just I, I would just go, and I also don't like, um, but it's. It is true, but it's very difficult to say global warming when it's really cold outside. So I would usually go with explaining about the destruction of the climate, which 
pretty much everybody could see and hear in the news. So I'm saying that the climate is changing, and it's it, there. There is a imbalance rather than warming or anything else. So I wouldn't go into the science trying to explain what the glow, you know, the the greenhouse effect or something like that. So I'll just I'm just saying that, for example, look what happened in the Arctic recently about the vortex, all those things. So this is this is how you could explain simply that there is a destruction there is a imbalance in the in the climate it's a it's a big major change in different regions and it brings extreme weather events that's what you could basically say that this is a drawdown mm. you can't attribute it according to the science if you're purely scientific so you can't really do that but that's how i explain to my children for example to my older daughter i'm saying that look this is this is because of the climate change not the global warming or something mm. like that. It's, this is the changing climate. And we need to we need to act on that. We need to adapt, and we need to understand that this is happening now. So it's I I, I, I usually try to and I also I, I used to work as a policy advisor to uh, in the government. So and part of my job was writing briefing materials for um, for the for the politicians. So and it's uh, I would also avoid complex scientific details that should be simple mm. and mm. understandable to the uh, as you said people on the street so I, I, I very rarely mm. using the science uh, scientific targets though the, I think for the business it should be ingraded like for the when you're doing it professionally it should be ingraded in your Definitely, business yeah. but for the for the like in the in the general conversations I, I would probably have uh, a talk as a David Attenborough, <laughs> those sorts of... I, I think it's super interesting the way you guys talk about climate change as this abstract thing that's hard to feel. There's a whole swathe of the world that is definitely feeling it really no, strongly. That's, that right is now. very fair. <laughs> and that's true. I guess we're really having this conversation of a frame of mind of we're living in the UK and we're privileged enough not to be experiencing these yeah. effects. I mean, there are, there are people who are suffering from flooding in the UK and people whose food is probably more expensive and they're struggling as a result of climate change. Um, and it's about getting people to connect their actions to stuff that's happening a really long way away. It's really hard. Like, it's understandably really hard. As human beings, we have only a certain amount of capacity to feel empathy that's that distant from us. Um, and so one of the things, well, I guess the foundation of how we think about behaviour change at Global Action Plan is that taking an issue that maybe as sustainability people that are really impassioned about the impacts of climate change, that's the reason we want to do something, that's the reason we would want to change someone's behaviour, doesn't actually be, have to be the reason they change their behaviour. So when we think about air pollution, for them it might be that their child is suffering from asthma, mm. And getting them to stop using their car is because their child has asthma, not necessarily because the fumes that are coming out of their diesel car are contributing to greenhouse gases. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it has to be narrowed down to the individual and thinking about how, what matters to them. It doesn't have to be the bigger, we need a 1.5 degree world, otherwise we're going to see ultimate collapse because mm. that's, that's too big and too scary. And, really hard to feel like you can do anything about. I definitely agree with that. And, and you know, that's absolutely kind of spot on, and which is why in many of these regards at Tesco, we come with 
humility to non-profit organizations like this who have been speaking to customers and indeed to citizens, you know, to people about these subjects for, very, for a very long time. And sometimes businesses can feel a little bit insecure about almost being seen to lecture citizens on how mm -hmm. to live their lives. And so we're sensitive to that. And so we listen very intensely, very attentively, one-on-one -on -one to Global Action Plan, to WWF, to Greenpeace, to different organizations about, you know, what role do you want us to play in this conversation that you're facilitating within society? In fact, in November 2018, we announced a partnership with WWF UK with a primary goal to cut in half the impact, of the environmental impact of the average shopper's basket in the UK. Mm because we understand, based on the Living Planet report from the WF and lots of other experts, that the food system is one of the singular biggest driver of, of adverse environmental impacts, be it climate or water pollution or indeed uh, forest loss. And so we're working with them because we don't have all the expertise and we think that we can achieve more together than Tesco working on our own non-profit organizations have the expertise and the confidence more than businesses do to help shape societal behavior. When we work at our best, it's to respond to that changing behavior. And we're thinking if we work together, how can we achieve those goals? And to the example you gave about Clean Air, the Global Action Plan convened this forum of some of the biggest owners of fleet in the UK, Tesco being one of them, to commit to the clean van commitment. You know, you brought the idea to us and we looked at it and we felt actually we can all commit to moving to ultra low emissions vans, actually zero emissions van from the tail end of our vans by 2028. And we made that commitment, but it was convened by Global Action Plan and pulled together other organizations like ourselves. So it's still an area that we're learning, but we're quite happy to be led by organizations such as yours who understand this area and have the credibility to talk to customers or citizens about it. I think Tesco in particular in a, in a really interesting place as, as a kind of supermarket consumer facing um, and you, you're extremely kind of swept up not only just in the in the kind of the impact of food I mean January I always pronounce it wrong but it's, it's Veganuary was a big big kind of thing in, in January there's a lot more kind of debates going on around climbing back to meat and dairy obviously supermarkets have been probably absolutely inundated with uh, requests for information and, and demands for action around plastics. Um, and, and as John said, there's an interest in perhaps development in taking the conversation around plastics and, and taking consumers along to the wider climate um, conversation. Have you, have, you, have you been able to do that? Have you noticed any kind of correlation with people, perhaps just consumers that come to you wanting information on your plastics footprint or food waste, etc., and then being able to kind of then steer them towards the wider science-based targets, for example? Yeah, I mean, the, these are kind of difficult, complex issues with, with very profound trade-offs that we have to grapple with all the time. You know, sometimes you get it right in one area and you find yourself getting it wrong. If mm -hmm. I use as an example, as part of our goal to cut emissions from packaging and from transport, we made a commitment years ago to switch to light weighting of packaging materials because then you don't have to use quite as many vans and trucks to move products, they're not quite as heavy and all of that. But actually, the easiest way to do that in many parts is to switch from glass to plastic. Mm. 
So you achieve this goal in climate reduction in transport, mm -hmm. and then you have to deal with, well, what happens to the plastic at the end of its life? Or sometimes you say, okay, we're going to reduce the use of plastic, say, in this sort of material, whether it's in covering of fresh produce or in the uh, casing of eggs and so on. And you see your food waste go up, which has by far more emissions, more environmental impact from your climate and water use perspective than plastic. And yet you can't say we're not therefore not going to do anything about plastic because it has all these other impacts. So it's always this is where we need the expert insights of, of you know, I've talked about technical experts. I'm mm -hmm. not undermining or under, underselling their importance. That's where you need them to help you understand deeply what's the next step we need to make. And the, 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 the temptation we all need to avoid is to say that we can start from a system that is as it is today and jump to a perfect system. You know, it's, it's, we need to then take the next step we know is in the right direction and is the biggest next step we can take. And so we started, first of all, we published in June 2018, uh, red, what we're calling our red amber uh, green list which is the reds of packaging materials we are saying to our suppliers, by the end of this year, 2019, we don't want you to use any of these materials in packaging of the products we sell. The green ones are the ones we want to see you use more, and the amber ones are the ones that, if we get the science right, they could become green. If we don't get it right, we'd have to ban it. Yeah? So that's the one that research is still taking place. And the goal of that, really, is to cut as much as possible the packaging materials that cannot be recycled to take them out of our supply chain. And then for the ones that can be recycled, make sure that we use as little of it as possible. And then when we do, to make sure that they are returned, they are collected, and they are put back into a recycling stream, which is why we were one of the first big companies to support the deposit return scheme when the government mm -hmm. started. It's not perfect, but we thought this is a, 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 bold, a big step, and we, we supported it. Um, and we're calling on the government, and we're happy that, that that kind of call is getting through, to introduce a nationally consistent recycling infrastructure in the UK, so that when you go to Southwark in London or Westminster, or indeed Lambeth next door, that the collection of recycling materials is clear, you know where you put it, and there's very limited contamination. Now, it's going to be quite a long journey, and we're willing to take our customers on, the, on that journey. We, we're willing to share on our website and all of that, but we don't want it to be seen as greenwash. We're having these conversations behind the scene, and we share where necessary with customers. But what we want to reassure them is that the trade-offs that are needed, we're trying to understand it, and we're trying to make the best decisions, balancing food waste reduction with emissions from transport, with plastic, and so on. And it's not, it's not always easy or has a clear answer to go to. Brilliant stuff, and, and I really like the, the kind of colour code system. Actually, one of the topics I'm going to be talking about tomorrow on the second part of this podcast will be about the dangers of kind of chasing that perfect innovation and the fact that you could just stand still. Um, so that kind of ties nicely over into that. And I did, I kind of tried to promise you all that I would get you out of this in time for lunch, and I've just checked my watch, and um, we are kind of slightly over that time, and I don't want you to, to miss out. So I will, um, I will stop this here. I mean, it's a conversation that I could have carried on for another hour or so but then we would have ran into into the science-based target session this afternoon so i wanted to thank um all four of you for um you know dipping out of the leadership labs to to come and chat with me i feel like this was a little leadership lab of our own we've <laughs> come away with a lot of insight um and it's it's just great to see that the i suppose the way that leadership in sustainability has, has moved it's no longer just the companies that are 
that are doing the most, but they're, they're, they're talking most, and they're very honest with the fact that they don't have all the answers in this cross-sector um, collaboration, working with public bodies as well, and even with rivals as well, is becoming such a prominent thing, which is quite refreshing um, from someone who's written a fair bit about this to, to see. But yeah, thank you um, all four of you so much. Um, I really hope you enjoy the rest of today's forum. Um, and for those who have been uh, watching or listening, or I think that's the only way you can really digest these, um, <laughs> please do be sure to check out the website tomorrow for the second episode where we'll be featuring insight from the likes of E.ON, the Woodland Trust and uh, Siemens. And on that note, thank you again to our sponsors, E.ON. And um, this has been ED's Sustainable Business Covered podcast, and we'll be back tomorrow with part two.